This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to The Country Hour this 26th of January 2023. I'm Cassie Huff. It's great to have your company today for Australia Day. Coming up... uh, I'm going to introduce you to someone who can often be spotted digging in paddocks, wearing a hat decorated with dung beetles and breaking into song. They're also now an Order of Australia Award Medal winner as well. It was just so satisfying, Meg, to be doing something positive for the planet. Oh, yes. And farming to help farmers face the future more on that Order of Australia medal winner and what he has done to be worthy of the award. Also, you may not think of plants as being cooperative or competitive, but it could make a big difference to how well they yield. I'll have more on why soon. But first up today, former Federal Independent MP for Indi and Farmer Cathy McGowan has been appointed the new chairperson of AgriFutures. The Research Development Corporation looks after 13 agriculture industry organisations from chicken, meat to rice to bees to thoroughbred horses. And Ms McGowan hopes to address the skills shortage in agriculture and encourages all students to finishing school to consider further study in agriculture. Agriculture, and she spoke to Annie Brown about her new role. I was very keen to to become the chair, and absolutely delighted that the minister and the department um, have appointed me. So that's really good. And the reason why I really am keen to be doing this job for three years is that I believe agriculture is just so important for the future of Australia, and it's our rural communities that underpin the success of ag. And I am really interested in how we continue to grow and support our rural communities. We get workforce that we need, we get the education we need, we get the health services we need, and then as well grow the jobs which come out of agriculture. And so I don't don't know if you you knew this, Annie, but 93% of Australian agriculture uh, produces 93% of all the food that's consumed in Australia. And then 70% of our agricultural product is exported. And that's worth $64 billion you know, plus a year. So it's a really important industry. And I'm just, I've always loved it. I've grown up on a farm, worked in agriculture all my life. So I'm really keen now to be chair of this just wonderful future-directed research and development corporation. So, yeah, so AgriFutures is Research Development Corporation, but how would you describe to people what exactly it, it does mm. for farmers? So it's, it's, it's an excellent question. So there are, <clears throat> there are 15 research and development corporations. So they basically cover off the major agricultural industries, like people know about grains or dairy, <clears throat> excuse me, or MLA, which does meat and Australian wool innovation. So AgriFutures does the rural part of the research and development and it's also responsible for smaller uh, industries that don't have their own big R&D group. So for example, um, AgriFutures looks after bees, uh, rice, pasture seeds um, and lots, lots others, lots of others as well. 
So it works with the industry to set priorities, to help do the research and the extension, teaching people about it. But also it does new industries coming up. So if someone's got an interest, say, for example, in sesame seed, uh, AgriFutures would do the beginning work on how that industry would grow. So they're currently working on sesame seed, uh, seaweed, uh, native pastures, which is really important, truffles even. So they pick up new industries as they come through. How's AgriFutures funded? Is it government funded or levy funded? It's, it's, yeah, it's a mixture. It has government funding. Uh, it has levy funding. So the cotton industry, not the cotton, sorry, uh, rice industry, the rice growers put money in as part of their levies and the bee growers, so there's levies. But then there's also um, industry partnerships. So uh, AgriFutures works with other groups and they, they put their money in together. So there's sort of three main forms of, of funding there. And so Avoca Ag is coming up in the next couple of weeks down in Adelaide. There's lots of talk always about technology emerging out of agriculture. What are some of the things that have caught your eye and got you excited about? Well, I, I, I've never been to Avoca Ag, so I'm really looking forward to going. But some of the other things that AgriFutures is doing is, are really important and I'll be putting my attention to this. It's the whole topic of how do we get enough people to come and be involved in all the different spaces of agriculture? Because as you know, there's a huge shortage of, in the workforce. So I'm really keen that um, our, best, <laughs> our best and bravest and most innovative come and work in agriculture and that we actually do really good work with our workforce. So not only at school level, though of course that's important, but also at uni level, but also then getting the, the, the skills that we need because agriculture needs, like Evoke will show, it's, it's an opportunity for some of the most creative, exciting new technology to be applied to growing food and fibre. It's, it's the time of the year when students are just finishing off making their choices for what they're going to do next. So I would like to say to any parents or aunts and uncles who are listening today, if your young people in your life are undecided, can I suggest you send them in the direction of agriculture to Wagga, to Melbourne, to CSU and or Armadale to get them to do a degree in ag and it will open up so many opportunities for them uh, and give them just excitement and adventure or if they're researchers, opportunity to do amazing research. So we've just got a couple of weeks left before the university year gets underway, or the TAFE year. So um, send your kids to ag is what I'd be saying. Cathy McGowan, the new chairperson for AgriFutures, speaking with Annie Brown. Now, uh, today is Australia Day, and as a result, there are some medals being handed around, and among those awarded an Order of Australia medal today is someone who can often be seen digging around in paddocks, wearing a hat decorated with dung beetles, sometimes even breaking into song. That's Dr. Graham Stevenson, who is a renowned Tasmanian for his pioneering work with dung beetles and earthworms. But as he and his wife Janice explained to Meg Powell, some of his proudest moments have been dressed in a white lab coat, holding a bandaged bucket of soil in front of hundreds of children. Now, I better start with a congratulations to you, Thank Dr. You Graham Stevenson. Much. Thank you, Meg. Now, how did, how did you feel when you found out the news? Absolutely pleased to the hilt. I was. Totally unexpected, but uh, a thrill. And uh, Janice can attest to the fact that I've been very hard to live with the late. <laughs> 
has he, Janice? <laughs> Look, it's it's been a roller coaster, but it's fun. <laughs> that go roller coasters and fun go together, don't they? They absolutely do. Now, Graham, I'll be honest. I thought you actually already had an OAM. Well, uh, I was awarded as the Senior Australian of the Year for Tassie in 2020. Oh. Also, I've received the Premier's an inaugural land care award. Yes, they're the three, and they're the two previous major ones. You've been awarded this for in recognition of your contributions in land care and, and in agriculture. Did you ever expect to win so many awards for poo, essentially? Well, I am a pooologist, <laughs> Meg. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What a worthy topic, of course. Yes, Well, it's not all about poo. Some of it was. I've had probably five arrows to my bow. Yes, I've worked with organic agriculture. I've done coast care, but as a volunteer. Kept Somerset Beach free of rubbish. And land care with Wynyard Land Care. Oh, we've achieved a lot. And then the dung beetles and the earthworms. Oh, yes. So it's kept me fairly preoccupied. And, and also the, the children's skits. Dr. Spluttergrunt and <laughs> Sally the Sick Soil. Now, for our radio listeners there, a massive smile just split your face. That's quite dear to your heart. Oh, I've probably done 40 or 50 acts at schools. A hunk of soil dug from a backyard with bandages wrapped around it. <laughs> and that's Sally the Six Soil in a little pram. Oh. And she was run over by a tractor when she was wet. Oh, poor Sally. And so Dr. Spluttergrunt examines her with stethoco- uh, stethoscope and drama. <laughs> and the kids loved it and so did I. <laughs> and Sally needs... Dung beetle pills and earthworm tablets <laughs> to get holes in her. Uh-huh. Because <laughs> she was squished down. <laughs> yes, all the holes were squished clothes and soils need holes. And if you don't have holes yourself, you can be rather blocked up. <laughs> <laughs> I see you haven't lost your flair for the dramatics. Would oh. you agree with that, Janice? <laughs> yes, very much, yeah. <laughs> So the school acts were just gorgeous. Um, How did you keep up the energy over all that time of performing for kids and teaching and digging around in fields and all those things? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yes. How... It was just so satisfying, Meg, to be doing something positive for the planet. Oh, yes. And farming, to help farmers face the future. Oh, that was very satisfying. So I think that was my energy um, as much as anything. Dr. Graham Stevenson, OAM, speaking with Meg Powell about uh, 
what energised his tireless years working in land care and helping farmers and inspiring kids to think about, of all things, soil health. And if you know someone who is doing some great work in agriculture or maybe in, in land management, uh, perhaps they're uh, a young person getting into the industry or someone who you've turned to over the years for advice, it'd be great if you could nominate them or perhaps nominate yourself for the Farmer of the Year Awards. They're open at the moment. Here's some more details. Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au Proudly supported by the Kandinan Group and ABC Rural. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, we'll move to crops now as it is 17 minutes past 12. How important is it for your crops to cooperate with you? Well, new research from Agriscope, which is a Swiss agricultural research centre, has identified that crop yields could be increased if plants are bred to be more cooperative and less competitive. Researcher Samuel West says identifying cooperative traits in plants was easier than first thought and they now plan to move this model into crops to consolidate their findings. Increasing crop yields is a key goal of any breeder or any, anyone working breeding research and it turns out to be quite difficult in general to increase crop yields. We always assume that bigger plants give us bigger yields. Now it turns out that's actually not quite true Sometimes smaller plants give us bigger yields, especially if they, if they don't compete for light. So competition is the main driver of uh, a very important driver that prevents plants to yield better, especially in high densities. So we are interested in decreasing competition amongst plants, especially in high densities, and increasing cooperative uh, traits, which is um, something that has been known for decades. But we, we just essentially took these ideas that have been floating around for quite a while and we, we combined with a with a genetic method or with simple method to recognize which plants are more cooperative and which plants are more competitive. And how did you identify which plants were more cooperative and which ones were competitive? Maybe it's, it's good to first define what, what cooperation actually means. Cooperation is a costly behavior that confers fitness benefits on same species recipients. So, and, and it's hard to recognize cooperative plants because it's more intuitive to recognize cooperative humans, I guess, because it's, it's associated with certain behaviors. But in plants, we argue it can be recognized by putting plants into different social contexts. So, and, and this is intuitive in a way that in humans, you would have a, a very cooperative person. You would put the person into a room with less competitive people then the person would suffer a lot, but the group would benefit. Um, but if you put that person into a room with very cooperative uh, other people, then the whole group would do very, very well. So, so really this cost-benefit analysis um, that you analyze in, in different social contexts, that gives us a hint as to what, what, whether a plant is more cooperative or more competitive. And obviously in this case, a more cooperative plant means working more harmoniously. As, as you've just said, um, as we see in humans. So once these plants have been identified, what information have we found out about how these will increase yields? 
Well, uh, well, we know some cooperative trades that, that do increase yield quite dramatically. Um, for example, in, in wheat, making wheat smaller, so introducing what we call a dwarfing gene into wheat, makes plants smaller and uh, also changes the leaf angles. So you can pack many more plants into a, a small, you know, dense field, essentially. And they don't invest so much into growing tall, but they invest more into making grains. So that's, that's how we, we know that this works well. But, but there are other, other things, other trades that we don't, maybe, maybe we don't see so well. For example, underground trades, you know, certain root foraging behaviors that we don't see and, and analyzing them kind of agnostically or using our method, just putting them plants into different contexts, social contexts, and seeing which, in which context they perform particularly well kind of allows us to identify kind of unrecognized traits that may be important for increasing crop yields in the future. And the ideas inspired for this research weren't necessarily new, but there's new information. So what can we take away from this recent research? Well, the message that we, or the interesting thing we found is that normally, again, it's kind of known that increasing yield is, is complicated because it has a, what is called a, complica- a complex genetics underneath. So improving, you know, for example, growth, plant growth or, or plant performance under stress is very complicated, genetically speaking. But it turns out that actually we found that the genetics of cooperation was kind of simple. There was one major, what we call a major effect gene that we identified in our simply model systems. So these are model plants. We didn't do a, this experiment in crops, but we're going to do this now. But it turns out that the genetics of, of this social trait seems to be much more simple than, than you know, what, what we know that, of the genetics of, of complicated traits such as uh, growth rates and so on and so forth. So it's kind of funny that we have this group property or, or, or social strategy of a plant and it seems to be genetically simpler and genetically simpler means it's, it's more easy to use in, in a breeding context or it would be more easy to use in a, in a breeding context. So our work really developed the method to identify cooperative traits in plants. So the paper we published is purely a method or an, an idea how, how we would do it in crops and the next step, of course, is to do it in crops. And we, we're now doing experiments in soybean that were actually kind of similar to the, the experiments we did in the, in the model plants. But just to see whether this can be transferred, the method itself could be transferred directly to, to a crop situation. And in the crop, what we want to identify is cooperative traits that allow us to put more soybean plants, in this case, to the same field, you know, put them at higher densities. And this is normally a problem because higher density, under high density in particular, plants escalate competition. They really invest a lot into competition and that investment is then missing from producing grain. Samuel West from Agriscope, which is a Swiss centre for agriculture, speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. So interesting way of characterising plants, they're cooperative and competitive. You certainly know the competitive ones, but uh, it's uh, interesting to, to hear about the cooperative traits and what that could mean for crops going forward. I'd be interested to see where that research goes. More to come on the country hour, including a, a bit of a trip to the UK after uh, the first big wine promotion event was held there this week uh, since the the COVID hiatus. I'll give you a bit of an update on how that has gone. But we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now where I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Vince Rollins. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So it's starting to warm up a little. It's not a scorcher for Australia Day, but tomorrow could be. Yeah, it is certainly um, 
looking at hot to very hot conditions across the state tomorrow, but still pretty hot in the north today, still getting some temperatures up around the 40-plus the degree mark. So, uh, yeah, it's still pretty hot for uh, people living uh, yeah, in the sort of far north north of the state. But generally, just looking at uh, milder conditions near the coast, just warm to hot uh, across most of the interior. But, uh, yeah, very hot conditions still up in the north. And we're basically our weather pattern at the moment has just been driven by a, a high-pressure system that's just sitting uh, pretty much south of the bite at the moment. That will continue to move eastwards over the next few days ahead of a, a trough that's going to move over inland parts of the state uh, during Friday and an associated frontal feature that moves across uh, mainly the coastal fringes uh, as we head into the weekend as well. So we will see those winds uh, tomorrow swing around to more of a, a north to northeasterly ahead of that uh, trough as it moves through. So that's what's, what's going to help drive those temperatures up tomorrow. So yeah, as I said, hot to very hot conditions uh, across most parts of the state. But we do also get a, a little bit of an infeed of uh, tropical moisture over western parts of the state tomorrow, uh, just ahead of that system. So that is going to drive some shower and thunderstorm activity probably west of about Sejuna to Cooper PD tomorrow. And there's a pretty high risk of uh, the, some of those uh, thunderstorms um, just becoming severe <coughs> over the sort of western border region so uh, yeah, there's a risk of some gusts with those thunderstorms and, and some potential uh, heavy rainfall as well so we'll be looking at that pretty closely over the next sort of 12 to 24 hours and uh, yeah just keep an eye out for any warnings that do get issued associated with those thunderstorms out in the west but on uh, Saturday as that trough uh, continues to move Eastwards, we will see northerly winds continue ahead of it, so it's still very hot in the north, particularly in the northeast of, of the state. But as that trough moves across, it does bring showers across most parts of the state, maybe not the, the sort of eastern border area of the northeast pastoral district, but elsewhere we are expecting showers and again um, a risk of some severe thunderstorms in the far north of the state. <coughs> um, uh, just associated with that, still that uh, infeed of, of tropical moisture. So again, we'll be looking at that one pretty closely. Now we do get some elevated fire dangers uh, with this system, but at this stage we've just got high for for the majority of the districts. So we'll obviously be looking at that a little bit closer over the next couple of hours. But uh, yeah, just keep an eye on that. But uh, generally, uh, just looking at moderates to, to highs uh, and certainly easing once that change goes through. But as we head uh, into Sunday and, and for early next week, we get another high-pressure system coming in behind that trough and frontal feature. So the winds swing back round to the southerly, bringing milder conditions right throughout the, the state and pushing the, the shower and thunderstorm activity to the northern parts of the state and eventually into the far north and clearing um, as we head into the middle of, of next week but could see a little bit of shower activity returning to uh, southern coasts and ranges around that sort of Wednesday, Thursday period but certainly we will see those hot to very hot uh, conditions dissipating Cassie uh, as we head uh, Behind, well, once we see that uh, that trough in front move through, 
Now, as far as rainfall goes, it's always a bit tricky when we get uh, quite a bit of thunderstorm activity, but generally we're thinking around that sort of 2 to 10 millimetres across parts of the state where we will see the showers and thunderstorms. Could see some higher falls, up to 20 millimetres associated with the thunderstorms, but there is a little bit of a risk. We could get some of those storms, uh, the, the more, um, well, the likelihood of the severe ones producing some uh, rainfall totals up around that sort of 40 millimetre mark. So, yeah, it's a likelihood uh, if we do see some of those totals, they will be in a short period of time and, and cause some issues. So something to uh, be aware of, particularly in the north and west. So, yeah, generally speaking, Cassie, temperatures war heating up tomorrow, uh, a milder change coming through over the weekend uh, with a risk of some showers and thunderstorms across the state. Thanks for that, Vince. Sounds like uh, people should keep listening to the uh, Bureau of Meteorology for advice on what happens with those uh, storms that you, you could be forecasting there. Yeah, definitely over the next year, 12 to 24 hours. Uh, yeah, worth keeping an eye on those warnings. Great. If Thanks for that. issue any. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Vince. Vince Rollins from the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There's a slight chance of a shower or thunderstorm, possibly getting a bit severe in the east in the afternoon and evening. Overnight, the temperatures will drop to about 20 to 25 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach around 40 degrees. The lower western will see a sunny morning. Uh, there is the chance of a thunderstorm in the far east as well there in the afternoon and evening. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 15 to 19 degrees, but the daytime temperatures will reach the mid to high 30s. I've got more to come on the Country Hour with you this Australia Day. I uh, hope you're having a nice day as we Approach 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company today on Australia Day. I'm Cassie Huff and uh, when you think of a meal you might associate with uh, today, lamb possibly comes to mind after years of advertising campaigns uh, telling us that this is the day to eat it. Uh, but is it actually something that's translated into what you eat? Our um, domestic utilisation of lamb in the last 10 years has fallen by 19%. But our export numbers of lamb has gone up by 48%. And, and that's just the product following the market. So it seems like that message is actually being uh, perhaps taken up overseas rather than here in Australia. So I'm interested to know, do you actually eat lamb today or around this time of year? And has your consumption perhaps changed in the last six years or so? You can text me on 0467 922 one, uh, let me know what uh, you think about lamb around this time of year, and or even just through the year. Is it something that is still a staple on on the the menu? I know uh, we had lamb just about every meal when I was a child, but I certainly don't eat nearly as much these days. So let me know what you think. Also, uh, after a bit of a hiatus. Australian wine is back big time in the UK. It's become our largest market by volume and 
this week. There are about 700 wines being showcased there to try and see more Australian wines getting onto menus or wine lists in that country. I'll have more on how that's gone. But first we'll find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the Governor-General has paid tribute to the late Queen Elizabeth in his Australia Day address. David Hurley says he introduced the 2022 Australian of the Year recipients to the Queen months before her death last year. He says the monarch demonstrated values like commitment to service, kindness and compassion that are reflected by ordinary Australians. The opposition leader Peter Dutton has appeared to knock back an offer from the Prime Minister to sit down and discuss practical issues and suggestions on the proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament. The Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has indicated his door is open to Mr Dutton and others who want to discuss the voice. And four men were kicked out of last night's Australian Open tennis in Melbourne after threatening security and brandishing Russian flags. Police intervened after the group started chanting and waving the flags, one picturing Vladimir Putin's face after Serbia's Novak Djokovic defeated Russian player Andrei Rublev. Russian and Belarusian flags are banned at the Australian Open. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Now, as I was saying, the Australia Trade Tasting event has returned to London, showcasing more than 700 wines from 200 wine producers, so hundreds of trade and media people in the UK. Now, the United Kingdom is Australia's largest wine market by volume, and the event is a chance to once again showcase the wine that's being produced here. Wine Australia's Marketing General Manager, Paul Turali, says after a hiatus due to COVID, the event was a great chance to show the Brits just what Australian wines are doing. It's really an opportunity for the the category or the, the industry to be able to be there en masse and showcase things that are, that are new and different and exciting. So Australia, as you rightly said, um, is still the biggest, I think, of all the producers that are selling into the UK. But we have built most of that success over, over many decades through particularly the retail channels, so the, the big supermarkets and, and in the off-trade. And what the trade tasting that we've just undertaken in London has done, in fact, only yesterday, is really try to focus on uh, on trade and some of the smaller opportunities. It's, when I say smaller, not the big retail, the big supermarkets, but the smaller could be regional distributors and regional wholesalers that will supply into a lot of the on trade. So your restaurants, your pubs, your clubs, those sort of areas. So it's a great uh, it's a great opportunity to, to, to showcase new and different, but it's also a great opportunity to showcase premium with that idea around premiumisation. So that is the uh, that is the primary focus for our Australia trade tasting. From my time in the UK, I did see a lot of Australian wine in in what you call the off trade, the the bottle shops and things like that. But in the on trade, those big European powerhouses of wine production, France, Spain, Italy, really still dominate those wine lists. How can Australia change that? One wine list at a time is the answer answer to that question. Both the Italian and the French um, have... Well, let's let's be realistic. They've got you know 150, 200 years head start in many of those channels that we now need to try and gradually prize open. It shouldn't be underestimated either. If you walk around London on every second, well, probably on every corner there's a pub, but on every second or third corner there's either Italian or a French restaurant. So they're already provide a great entree to be able to showcase wines from those particular countries. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that benefit from an Australian perspective. So it really is taking it, you know, one, one, one wine list, one distributor, one wholesaler at a time, 
but actually providing wines that offer terrific value in what they deliver. So whether that is, um, again, that relevance to the, to the market, so whether it's new varietals, whether it's new blends, whether it's the no and low or no at lower alcohol, all of those have got a role to play, but it's about being quite specific in what channels and what customers we're trying to access and just making sure that we're putting the right products in front of uh, the people that are making the decisions. Was there anything in particular you were hoping the tasters would get out of the tasting event? Did you really target specific types of wine that Australia produces? We, we actually had a, a, a terrific mix uh, on what we had this year. So, And we'll continue to have strong presence in the traditional varieties, so Shiraz, Cabernet and Chardonnay, um, Riesling probably to a lesser extent. What we try very hard this time is uh, introduction of some of the new grape varieties. Uh, well, when I say new, new, new to Australia or emerging varieties in Australia. Um, we've seen a lot of planting over the last few years for what would be the traditional, um, probably Italian and Spanish varietals in Australia. Wines that are more savoury in nature than um, probably fruit-driven, which is probably where Australia has been, um, or what Australia has been known for over a long period of time. Um, and also our sparkling wines. We're seeing great growth in sparkling in many of our export markets and our sparkling wines offer ter- terrific levels of, of quality and um, terrific levels of value. So I think there's, um, uh, th- there's multiple areas that we were keen to probably just reinforce. And equally as importantly is the regionality. So I think we, we often talk internally about Australia being a, a continent of wine as opposed to a country of wine. And you look at the diversity in sort of Margaret River in the west, uh, sort of Orange in the east, uh, Mornington Peninsula, and you know all things South Australia in the middle. But as like I said before, it's still you know, half of Australia's wine production. You may have seen um, over the over the time there's a um, a graphic that often gets shown where Australia as a continent overlays Europe. Essentially, it's the same. Essentially, the same size. So what we're talking about in our diversity in Australia is. Um, applicable when we're saying, okay, well, what you might produce in Bordeaux is very different to what you'll produce in Champagne or Alsace or Rioja or wherever it might be. We've got that in, in, in one country, not in a um, or one continent, but one country, as opposed to having to go to the length and breadth of Europe to do the same thing. I love that, a, a continent of wine, because it is, it is the case, as you've explained. What was the feedback like from the tasting event? Uh, well, it's still coming through, given that literally the event only um, concluded a few hours ago in London. But uh, feedback to date has been very, very positive. We had uh, over 450 key trade um, and media that came along to the event. Um, I think one of the quotes that's come through here from, from Oz Clark, um, when this is here, I'd forgotten how thrilling Australian wine is. Old faces have never been better and there were wonderful new faces that I didn't even know about. And I think that probably sums it up pretty well because I think it's these events is all about discovery but also now a lot's happened over the last two or three years post-COVID and the opportunity to be able to to show for wineries and um, or their local distributors to be able to tell the stories to to show what has happened over the last two or three years development of new wines new styles it's all part of the mix so um uh, we'll, we'll see what comes out over the next over the next week or two, but to date, feedback very positive. 
Good to hear. Australia, one Australia's marketing general manager, Paul Turali, speaking about the Australia trade tasting event done uh, maybe not necessarily in conjunction with Australia Day, but uh, around the same time when perhaps uh, Australia is uh, more uh, thought about maybe in uh, the, the UK. And uh, sounds like uh, there was some success there. So I guess we'll find out more information about how well that goes as uh, Australia tries to claw its way onto some of those wine lists in the United Kingdom. But something that goes quite well with the wine is lamb chops. Are you throwing a lamb chop on the barbie to celebrate Australia Day this year? We're certainly told it's something to do in a lot of advertising, but is it something that you actually do? Text me 0467922891. Figures released by Meat and Livestock Australia this week show that we're eating less lamb but paying more for it. And Jesse from Mitchum agrees with that. Jesse writes saying, I like lamb, but it's about three times the cost of the past few years. Pork is really cheap at the moment so I've been eating that thanks for your text there Jesse Francis from Brighton though loves eating lamb on Australia Day with the family that is great to hear I'm sure Sam Kekovic would uh, be glad to hear that as well but uh, is it is it a manufactured thing or is it something that you actually really like to do text me 0467922891 Rob Herman from Mercado explains why local consumption is actually continuing to fall particularly against the uptake of lamb overseas if you look at the figures we've we've dropped from uh, in 2016 per head of population we were consuming 9.3 kilograms and and now the latest numbers out of 2021 are 6.4 kilograms and uh, and that's a drop is it price we're paying more um, so what's driving it well we're certainly paying more and the main reason for that has been the growth in export demand for lamb and I just mentioned how our um, domestic utilisation of lamb in the last 10 years has fallen by 19%, but our export numbers of lamb has gone up by 48%. And, and that's just the product following the market. The market demand and the prices are being driven by overseas. So there is a, it's fair to say that part of the reason we're consuming less lamb domestically is the price. And if the price of lamb has, say, gone up a, a dollar a kilo at a retail level, are the margins still there along the supply chain in a, in a local sense? When you talk to processors, they'll tell you that, um, you know, any any business like that is a cents and pennies business. And uh, they use that term a lot, actually, when you talk to them. And, and that's because, you know, they are trying to eke out margins. It's, it's very competitive. Um, and we've also had a really tough period with, um, you know, even if you go back a year ago, just trying to keep meatworks open, um, get staff and keep going. It would be fair to say that, that, you know, there are margins to be made there, but it's uh, one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of players in the, in the game at processor level is that it's a very difficult business. And I guess that's why a lot of the processors, I suppose, have been uh, reinventing uh, themselves in a way, focusing on on premium branded product alongside um, their their export carcasses. Exactly, and and the the ones doing that are um, you know doing it for the reasons that lamb is becoming more and more of a high quality eating decision, and that's good. That's good. Not only, not only in Australia but uh, but overseas as well. I think it's also their belief that the sort of work that they're doing on premium quality products now will become the norm 
you know, in five or six years' time. And so things we hear about things like intramuscular fat and um, lean meat yield and even the, um, the higher quality health requirements of, uh, of those lambs going into the quality pro- programs are going to be something that everybody's going to be trying to strive for because that's where the, the process, these processes think they can extract a premium. And it's interesting that, this, that you know, there's, there's good uptake from breeders, lamb producers. They're saying, well, here's an example of where we can focus our genetics and focus our feeding programs and, and deliver to a customer who's, who values it. So what do you think are the economic drivers for maintaining lamb values in 2023? What's going to shape the market? One of the really good things about the Australian lamb industry is that we have a very diverse market. And even though we looked at, uh, you know, our domestic consumption is down, it's still it's 33% of, of lamb tonnage, if you like, headed for the domestic market last year. So we've got, we've got a strong presence still, even though it's it, it's been declining with a strong presence still domestically but we've also got a very diverse market globally and and that's that's a value so we're seeing um you know still our biggest customers uh, china and the us but there's a lot of other customers around that are that are picking up lamb and, and that tends to spread the risk and it tends to create demand that's Rob Herman, who is the Managing Director of Mercado, chatting to Larissa Smith about some of the latest trends in the lamb market. It's interesting to think that uh, such a traditional Australian dish like a lamb roast or just lamb chops in general uh, is really perhaps in the 21st century more uh, something that's increasingly uh, taken up overseas. It's it's become a bit of a, a delicacy. David from Coonawarra says with regard to eating lamb, in our case, the cost of lamb is too expensive as both of us are retired. The cost is really becoming uh, quite a prohibitive factor with uh, lamb. And uh, another text saying, prefer pork and chicken to lamb, maybe 15 years since I had any. There you go. It's it's something, it's uh, it's one of those things that uh, I guess change over time, but uh, you still hang on to as being uh, iconic, but perhaps it isn't as iconic as it used to be. Do keep those texts coming. 0467922891 is the number to text in on. Now, uh, you might think of lamb as a, a bit of a delicate. The price is certainly somewhat reflecting that. But uh, how about truffles? Uh, South Australian truffles are not commonly associated, but truffle farmers, known as truffiers, uh, are slowly becoming more common in this state. With limited knowledge in the state, though, it can be difficult for those new to the industry. When Anthea Harrison and her husband bought a hobby farm and tourist destination on the outskirts of Mount Gambier, it came with a truffle orchard attached. Problem was, Anthea had never tried truffles, and so she's been resorting to researching on Facebook and YouTube to find out more. We thought that if we ever had a farm, we'd love to plant an orchard, not necessarily truffles. We thought we would do something like fruit, but truffles, we had no idea. So we thought, let's give it a shot. Can't be that hard. They grow underground. I haven't really tasted one, but heard they're good. Yeah, we'll just dive in at the deep end and see how we go. And how has it been diving in at the deep end? Have you been able to find many resources or information on your truffles here and, and what to do and how to do it? Uh, the previous owners gave us a lot of tips and advice. We know the trees came from Tasmania. We know that they were planted around 14 years ago. I think it's just a matter of waiting for them to come to maturity. 
And have you thought about this upcoming truffle season? Are you going to be maybe trying to get some out of the ground? Yeah, that's our hope. We did contact these two guys. They have truffle dogs and they're up in the Adelaide Hills. They said that if they have to come down to this region, then we've got to factor in extra costs like their accommodation. And then using their dogs to sniff out the truffles is a certain amount per hour. That's another expense that we're going to have to prepare for. So what we're going to do, we've got a little Kelpie Cross Border Collie. He's almost six months old. So what I'm thinking of doing is using our little pup and investing in some pretty expensive truffle oil, maybe training him up. That's something on on the agenda because that's going to save us a lot of time and money down the track. Have you been able to find much information on how to train a truffle dog? Do you know how you'd start to go about training up Odin to go find some truffles? No idea. Um, Like everybody else, it's YouTube. We've looked at all these different YouTube clips. Everyone's saying it takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy to to train up a dog, but I'm going to give it a shot. If you do happen to find some truffles out here come truffle season, what would be your plans for them? We have no idea. This is the thing that I guess is my biggest concern is when you find truffles, what do you then do with them? Who buys them? I think if we do find any truffles this year, I'm just going to learn how to eat them. New truffle farmer, Anthea Harrison. So where are the other South Australian truffiers? Well, Australian Truffle Industry Association Vice President and fellow South Australian truffier, Catherine Fole, says there are a handful of truffle farmers across the state, but it can be hard to get started in the industry. I would say we're still an emerging industry in South Australia. There are probably more truffle farms here than the general public would be aware of at the moment, and that's mainly because of the quantity of truffle being produced, viable truffles for the market. But we do still have at least, that I'm aware of, we have at least 20 truffiers in South Australia at the moment with well over 6,000 truffle trees planted across the state. Um, But yeah, as I said, the general public probably aren't aware that number of trees or farms, and probably because the other states particularly Western Australia and Victoria and Tasmania are producing significantly more quantities of truffle than we are here at the moment. We are a little bit behind in that I think our oldest truffier is 17 years old. Where are they mostly located in the state? Mostly across the Fleurieu Peninsula, across the Adelaide Hills that I'm aware of, uh, uh, the Barossa Valley and the Clare Valley, and there is actually a small plantation in um, Mount Gambia as well. But yeah, mainly in our wine-growing regions, Really? There is quite a lot of ground in South Australia that is perfect for truffles. Do you think mm-hmm. it's something that people might take up more going into the future? I think so. Every year I hear of additional farms being planted out. Um, I think this year there are at least three additional truffiers planted out in South Australia. I think not a lot is known in South Australia compared to Western Australia and Victoria where there have been truffle farms producing and with truffle entering the local market, it builds away and then people start to think about their own potential opportunities to plant truffle farms and then it sort of catches on when people realise that it's a viable product to to farm and harvest. So given there has been very little product grown and sold in South Australia, it's not really well known as a viable crop for South Australia yet but I think that's going to very quickly change in the next five years. 
And where are South Australian truffles typically heading once they've been harvested? A lot of the truffle produced in South Australia is sold directly to restaurants and where it could, I guess, be assumed that it's not even locally grown. It could be sourced from WA and people may make that assumption but if they start to hear and see more of it coming onto their plates in South Australia and being able to identify that it has been South Australian grown, I think word will get out very quickly and we're getting increased production over the last three years. We've almost doubled local production so it's looking good. From the farmers you've been in contact with, has it been successful? I think it's starting to. It takes a little bit of time. And there have been some farms in South Australia that planted over 10 years ago and have only just started producing in the last couple of years. So industry standard is now three to four years. And we produced our first white truffle on trees that were only two years old. But some farms planted out over 10 years ago and didn't even run any dogs on their trees until the 10-year mark when they suddenly discovered that they were producing. But yeah, now, I think initially when South Australians have been pulling truffle out of the ground and taking it directly to the market, i.e. to a, a chef, there has, they've been met with a little bit of disbelief because truffles aren't spoken about as being a product of South Australia. That could be changing, though. Catherine Fowle from the Australian Truffle Industry Association speaking with Elsie Adamo. I saw a beautiful documentary on some truffiers in Italy recently, and it's such an intriguing industry. I loved learning more about it and a very intriguing product as well. It's one thing that I do wonder what made people think to eat it originally, because they certainly don't look appetising. Deborah Moradas texted in along similar lines as well, saying that uh, she tried truffle oil once and that was enough. Yuck, I wonder if actual truffles taste better. Otherwise, they're not for me. Perhaps an acquired taste. I'd say so. Um, they're very, like, you know, a little goes a long way uh, from what I've experienced. But, uh, yeah, still, I find it a very fascinating industry. It's coming up to seven minutes to one. Join the ABC on a wild odyssey. On planet Earth, life is hard, yet somehow it thrives. Stunning cinematography takes you on a journey across Australia's unique landscapes to uncover the connections that make life on Earth possible. We have to be in awe of what happens in nature. Australia's Wild Odyssey, Tuesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Today, working towards a net zero carbon future is something I know many of you are keen to work towards. And to help that mission, Australia's Gold Hydrogen has identified startup sites in the York Peninsula and Kangaroo Island to extract natural hydrogen. Gold Hydrogen Managing Director Neil McDonald says Australia has a wonderful natural energy source, but uh, needs to do more to take advantage of it. Why there is a political and environmental push towards hydrogen is that when it is burnt as an energy source, all it produces is steam and water. So it really is a, a zero carbon energy that I think the world's looking to for their push for the net zero future. And how do you extract hydrogen from layers of rock? So natural hydrogen formed in the ground has been there probably for centuries and it's a natural process where geologically there is iron rich rocks and water being the sea so it's naturally hydrolysis and what we like about 
natural hydrogen is that it's using existing drilling techniques on a very small footprint to extract it and you drill into those sections where hydrogen, natural hydrogen, has been found previously in the 30s and 40s and the pressure of the gas in the ground from those reservoirs or those layers um, will and should flow to the surface. So this commercialisation of gold hydrogen would be Australia's first. How does that compare with other hydrogens that are currently being sourced already? Yes, yeah, so I'll um, answer that in two parts. It's a good question. So one, it's happening. There'll be other places in the world that have this. Um, in Northern Territory, there is a basin called Amadeus, and they're actually producing natural hydrogen, but in lower percentages, where our historical results in South Australia and the York Peninsula in particular has historical results of flowing up to 90% pure hydrogen. So it's the first in Australia to have a project that is solely based on pure hydrogen with no other gases. But it has been down around the world, and um, my colleague says we're not on the bleeding edge here. It's been done and uh, it's been done successfully and we hope to replicate that. And why was Kangaroo Island and the York Peninsula selected as the two locations for the sites? Are they more hydrogen rich or are other factors at play there? could be a combination of both. So the co-founder, Luke Titus, um, back two years ago, he was um, he just loves geology. He's probably one of the best frontier explorers in the world. And he came across references, which led it back to the South Australian government archives, which showed in the 1930s and 40s that when people were looking for oil and gas, um, they were unsuccessful and they found up to 90% pure hydrogen. And those discovery wells was the York Peninsula and Kangaroo Island. And that led us to apply, particularly for that area. So, so that's what interested us to, to go there first. And how do residents feel about having the sites in their region? Yeah, so we have done um, a fair bit of stakeholder engagement along the way. We've been in regular contact with the local members of parliament, state and federal, and including the mayors of both areas. And to date, again, even recently, since we listed on Friday, they have responded with, we look forward to your progress and your endeavours and to support us. We have had uh, engagement with a few of the, the landholders and that has also been successful to date. But now that we're listed, we will be doing a more significant stakeholder engagement plan, which uh, we have finalised and we'll be re-engaging with those parties and other direct stakeholders in the area. When you explain to them it's natural hydrogen, it's a clean energy source, and it's um, helping uh, the world go towards a uh, net zero, low carbon future, and to be part of that, the feedback to date has been very positive from all parties that we've spoken to. So the gold hydrogen began trading on the Australian Stock Exchange last Friday. How has it gone so far? Oh look, it's it was a it was a very good result Friday. It's a tough market financially at the moment, but we were able to finish the day of trading above our listing price. Um, there have been other companies that have listed this year that have fallen fifteen and twenty percent below their listing price. So that was very good. In the last couple of days trading, we've gone up a further fifteen percent since Friday. So 
First of all, I think it validates the project and the support that we're getting from investors wanting to be part of it. And who are investing and buying in the gold hydrogen? There's a combination of investors from uh, significant institutional investors and funds that specialise in resource sector and energy sectors through to high net worth individual sophisticated investors through to mum and dad investors that want to invest in clean energy projects and um, really saw this one as one of the best ones that they've come across. Australia has a wonderful energy source and we're short of extracting the benefits of the energy source. This is new to discoveries which needs a lot more exploration and we'll do more exploration wells to prove it up so it is dependable and then we'll be able to um, progress the project through to hopefully powering um, South Australia and Australia and potentially um, export market depending how much we have. Gold Hydrogen Managing Director Neil McDonald speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. That's all I have time for today on the program. But if you're interested in finding out more, you can always go online to abc.net.au slash rural. If you'd like to catch up on the program ever as well, we do podcast the program each day. Just search for the South Australian Country Hour and uh, we should you should find it on uh, any of your podcasting sites. But I uh, hope that you continue to have a lovely day today as we approach one o'clock.